Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 9. And as you're turning there, I just wanted to let you know, uh, for those of you that have been faithful to pray for Jose and Irma Maldonado, who uh, were members of our church uh, a number of years ago and then were sent out to pastor uh, the Spanish-speaking church uh, in Navasota, uh, the church that they were a part of has sent them out, and uh, they have their own um, property now, their own facility. In fact, John Payne was influential in helping them construct that facility. It's right off of uh, Highway 6 and 105. And uh, so tonight, uh, they're having, or really this whole weekend, they've been having a dedication of that new facility. And so he invited me to come out tonight at 6 o'clock and preach the final message of this um, kind of weekend's uh, celebration of uh, God's goodness and and, uh, provision. And so um, if you're not doing anything tonight and want to have a nice drive out in the country, right? It's just a half hour away. Uh, six o'clock, we're going to be there, and uh, I'm going to be preaching, and uh, Jose is going to be translating uh, to his congregation. But it's just an opportunity to just rejoice with a family that uh, was part of us uh, for a number of years as God was training and equipping them. And uh, it's really exciting to see what the Lord's uh, doing out there. So continue to pray for them as you drive through Navasota. And uh, just a great testimony. Here's a guy that uh, grew up there. That was his hometown and uh, one of the original gangsters out there, as he, he would share in his testimony, and, and got radically saved. And now God's led him back there to be a light for Christ. And uh, can you imagine meeting this guy, right? If you were, ran with him in high school and college days, and all of a sudden he's the pastor of the church, right? And so I, I, we just get excited to see the, the impact that his life and ministry are going to make there in the Navasota area. So... Anyway, I appreciate your prayers tonight. If you're not able to come, just to be praying for us as we're out there ministering with Jose. Well, speaking of songs that um, we love, of all the songs that has ever been written, um, though the one song that has been recorded the greatest number of times by the greatest number of artists is Amazing, Amazing Grace. Exactly. Uh, this classic Christian hymn was written back in 1779 by a guy named John Newton, who was a notorious slave trader who was radically saved at sea and became a preacher in England. I imagine most of you are familiar with his testimony, but in case you're not, I wanted to just read a brief summary of what happened to this man. This is from James Montgomery Boyce's book, Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace?, And he tells Newton's story with these words. He said, Newton was raised in a Christian home in which he was taught verses of the Bible. But his mother died when he was only six years old, and he was sent to live with a relative who hated the Bible and mocked Christianity. Newton ran away to sea. He was wild in those years and was known for being able to swear for two hours without repeating himself. He was forced to enlist in the British Navy, but he deserted, was captured, and was beaten publicly as a punishment. Eventually, Newton got into the Merchant Marine and went to Africa. In his memoirs, he wrote that he went to Africa for one reason only, quote, that I might sin my fill. Newton fell in with a Portuguese slave trader in whose home he was cruelly treated. This man often went away on slaving expeditions, and when he was gone, his power passed to his African wife, the chief woman of his harem. She hated all white men and vented her hatred on Newton, He says that for months he was forced to grovel in the dirt, eating his food from the ground like a dog. He was beaten mercilessly if he touched it. In time, thin and emaciated, Newton made his way to the sea where he was picked up by a British ship making its way up the coast to England. 
When the captain of the ship learned that the young man knew something about navigation as a result of being in the British Navy, he made him a ship's mate. But but even then, Newton fell into trouble. One day, when the captain was ashore, Newton broke out the ship's supply of rum and got the crew drunk. He was so drunk himself that when the captain returned and struck him on the head, Newton fell overboard and would have drowned if one of the sailors had not quickly hauled him back on board. I don't know if this was the same instance, but I've read another account of his life where he fell overboard at sea and they had to harpoon him and pull him back in so he wouldn't die. Near the end of, the vo- of, of one voyage, as they were approaching Scotland, the ship ran into bad weather and was blown off course. Water poured in and the ship began to sink. The young profligate was sent down into the hold to pump water. The storm lasted for days. Newton was terrified. He was sure the ship would sink and he would drown. But in the hold of the ship, as he desperately pumped water, the God of all grace, whom he had tried to forget, but who had never forgotten him, brought to his mind Bible verses that he had learned in his home as a child. The way of salvation opened up to him. He was born again and deeply transformed. Much later, when he was again in England, Newton began to study theology and eventually became a preacher, first in a little town called Olney and later in London. An amazing testimony. And the first verse of Amazing Grace, arguably the most well-known lyric ever penned, really expresses in, in very simple yet profound language how Newton viewed his radical conversion to Christ. Amazing Grace... How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And so he compared his his divine deliverance from a life of sin to a blind man miraculously seeing uh, the light and receiving his sight. Now we know that the Bible oftentimes uses blindness as a metaphor for spiritual darkness that, that all of us live in um, because of our inability to understand the truth unless God's grace opens our eyes to see the light of the gospel and to believe the light of the gospel. Uh, we know that the Bible also likens Jesus Christ to the light who has the ability to dispel the darkness uh, in our lives. And this is, as we've been learning, one of the main themes of the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 1, all the way up to the last chapter we looked at last week, John chapter 8, where uh, John uh, presented Jesus as the light of the world, and then Jesus himself presented uh, himself as the light of the world. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness but we'll have the light of life. And so we know that uh, the Pharisees didn't care for Jesus' claims uh, of being the light of the world and other things that he claimed to be, i.e. God, the great I Am of the Old Testament. And this chapter, chapter uh, 8, you remember from last week, ended this way. Therefore, the Pharisees picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And then we come to chapter 9, which says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And so after supernaturally escaping the the life-threatening situation where he was uh, uh, really um, at risk of death um, in the days following the Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus encountered 
a man who had been blind from birth, and he healed him. And if you're keeping track, uh, this is the sixth of seven signs or miracles that John strategically selected to include in his gospel um, to prove specifically that Jesus is God, to prove his deity. Uh, Remember back in John chapter 2, he turned water into wine. Chapter 4, he healed a nobleman's son. Chapter 5, he healed a paralytic. Uh, Chapter 6, he fed the multitude. Chapter, also in chapter 6, he walked on water. He stilled the storm. Here in chapter 9, he restores the sight of a man born blind. The last sign we'll see in chapter 11 when he raises Lazarus from the dead. But back to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is unique, uh, not that Jesus healed a blind man, because this is not the only blind person that Jesus healed. The other Gospels uh, reveal to us or record many similar cases of of Jesus healing uh, people that were blind. But what made this particular healing unique was that this man was born blind. And so consequently, this story really is a perfect illustration of what it's like for sinners like John Newton and sinners like you and sinners like me to be delivered out of spiritual darkness into God's marvelous light. And we're going to see this man's physical transformation from blindness to sight is really an analogy of the spiritual transformation that took place in his life and really in the life of all those who trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I want you to notice here as we go through this chapter this morning that, that um, as, the, as this man's miraculous healing progressed, the story progresses, the man's understanding of Jesus Christ progresses as well. And the more uh, people that he interacts with, um, you see him growing in his understanding of who Jesus is. Let me point this out to you as we begin. Notice verse 11. When, when asked by his friends uh, how his eyes had been opened, he answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went away and washed and I received sight. And so initially, all this guy knew about Jesus was his, his name. All I know is some guy named Jesus healed me. Notice verse 17. So they said to the blind man again, what did you say? Or what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? This is the Pharisees questioning now about who he thought Jesus was. And he said, he's a prophet. And so apparently he's moving in his understanding of Jesus was. He wasn't just this guy named Jesus. This guy's a prophet. Then notice verse 33. Again, in, in rebuttal to the Pharisees' interrogation, he said, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so now he's not just a guy named Jesus. He's not just a prophet, but he's a man from God. And then chapter, uh, verse 35, Jesus heard, and they said, Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And so he went from uh, just knowing this guy, uh, really maybe just a voice, because uh, he couldn't see him, right, this, this man named Jesus, to knowing him as his personal Lord and Savior. And so I think the simplest way to grasp the, the meaning of this chapter is just to note that progression uh, in the man's faith in Christ. And, and it became clear and clear to him who Jesus really was until finally Jesus came into full focus and, and he committed his life to follow him as his Lord and Master. And we are going to see that really the greatest miracle 
in this story is, is not the, the immediate opening of his literal eyes to see what he had never seen before, but the gradual opening of his spiritual eyes to see Jesus. And so I want you to see four stages of faith in Jesus Christ from this story. And these, these four stages really represent four different perspectives on who Jesus is, or four different places where people can be at in their relationship to Jesus Christ. Everyone here this morning has a different perspective of who Jesus is. One of these four perspectives is true of you. All of you are in one of, four, one of these four places uh, in your relationship with Christ. You may have heard of a man called Jesus, and that's about it. That's, you just know there's a guy called Jesus. That's, a, that's, that's all you know. Uh, or you may think that Jesus was a prophet, some, some special guy uh, out there who had a lot of good things to say. Some of you may consider Jesus as a, as a man from God, that he was set apart from all the other men in the world, maybe like a, in the category. You know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as the Son of Man, the Son of God. Well, let's find out where you're at this morning, what, what perspective you have, what, what position you're in, what place you're in in your relationship with the Lord. First of all, you may have heard of a man called Jesus. Verses 1 through 12. Notice how this story begins. Verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, we're going to find out this guy was a beggar. That's what he was doing there on the side of the road or outside the temple. Blind people in those days had little or no opportunity for employment, so they were left to fend for themselves on the streets. And so they begged to survive. Notice verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi or teacher, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And so unlike Jesus, who saw this man uh, as someone in need of compassion and mercy, the disciples saw him as a theological puzzle that piqued their curiosity and they wanted to figure out. One commentator said it this way, for them the blind man was an unsolved riddle rather than a sufferer to be relieved. And so by their question... Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Uh, They were assuming that the reason why this guy had been born blind was the result of some sin that either he had committed or his parents had committed. And you say, well, where did they come up with that thinking? Well, uh, there's a verse in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, which says that God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And they, uh, many in those days, misinterpreted what God meant uh, by that statement. That does not, God was not implying there that he judges subsequent generations for a person's sins. It's simply, he's simply establishing the basic principle that one generation typically sets the tone for the next. In other words, our kids, our grandkids will be affected by our sin in that they will be more prone to practice the same sinful patterns that they've grown up around, right? That we've modeled for them, and consequently, they will experience the same punishment as we do if they continue in the habits that we have modeled for them. And so the Jews in Jesus' day misconstrued this verse to mean that if a person suffered from some kind of ailment or sickness, it was because his parents, their parents had committed some kind of sin against God. In fact, some rabbis even taught that a fetus 
could commit sin while in his mother's womb. And, and the kicking that goes on, right, the little baby kicks inside, that's evidence of their sinful state. How's it going, Michelle? You got a little sinner inside you kicking away, right? Yeah. So they thought that, that you could sin in the womb. That's what they believed. Now, how are we to understand this concept today? Um, well, generally speaking, we know that all sickness, all suffering, all evil in the world is ultimately the result of what? Sin, right? As a result of the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden, sin and death entered the world. And so the reason why we have all these bad things, right, like cancer and birth defects and, 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 and divorce and just the, the evil and the poverty and the, 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 the famine and all these kind of things, it's a result of sin in general. I think we can also say that certain sins can have physical consequences, um, you have to reconcile what Jesus says here in John 8 with what he already said in John chapter 5 uh, to the man, that, the paralytic that he'd healed at the pool of uh, Bethesda. Remember this in John 5, 14. Jesus found this guy in the temple and said, Behold, you become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. So the implication there is that maybe something that this guy had been doing in the past contributed to his ailment or his condition. And we know that sin has physical consequences. Um, you just have to go back to Psalm 32 where David uh, confessed, right, that while he tried to hit, hide his sin of, of murder or adultery and murder, it said that his body was wasting away within him, that it was like the life juices were just being sucked out of him. There, there was physical consequences to, to hiding his sin. Romans 1.27 talks about how God gives people over to immorality and homosexuality and they receive in their bodies the due consequences of their sin. Some interpret that as saying, look at the AIDS epidemic in our world today. It's a direct result of not abiding by God's rules for sexuality. Um, 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul says that some people were getting sick and even dying in the church in Corinth because they were dishonoring Christ as they took communion. And then James chapter 5 talks about if you're sick, call the elders and uh, ask them to pray for you. And then there's this strange line in there about confessing your sin, right? That there may be a situation where you are flat on your back and you know exactly why, but only you know that, right? And so you might take the opportunity that when the elders come to pray for you, say, you know what, there's just some issues in my life I need to confess to you and ask you to pray for me about those spiritual issues as well as my physical issues um, just so you know, I don't assume every time you go into the hospital and I come to pray for you uh, that you're in some kind of sin, right? And I come over there and go, okay, what'd you do? Why are you in here? Okay, I know. Something, you know. No, I don't even think that. The thought doesn't even cross my mind, right? But there may be an occasion where that's happening. So having said all that, to assume that a person's disability or sickness is the judgment of God for some specific sin that they or their parents committed is beyond our ability or authority. Only God knows why a person is the way they are. I mean, let's just look at the story of Job. Did Job sin? Is, is that why all those bad things happened? Was God punishing Job? No. He was trying to show Job off to Satan. He was trying to prove his integrity and how, what, a, what a godly man he was. And so we have to be careful um, just assuming the worst, right, about somebody or some situation. I mean, even like a baby born with a defect or, or a handicap of some sort, and people go look and they go, oh, man, I wonder what those parents did, that they're, you know, God's judging them with this. No, not at all. 
God is able to use those bad kinds of things to accomplish good things in our lives and to bring glory to himself. And that's exactly what Jesus says here in verse 3. He says, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus didn't view this man's condition as as God's judgment or God punishing him for some offense, but but as an opportunity for God to work, for God to be glorified. God sovereignly ordained this to happen, this man to be born blind, so that he could display his glory in the midst of this seeming tragedy. And if you're having a hard time hearing me blame God for blindness, well, listen, God takes all the credit for that himself. In in Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, uh, when Moses was arguing with God and saying, God, I really don't know how to talk, and are you sure you got the right guy to be the deliverer of Israel, and and, and I'm really not that eloquent. In Exodus 4, 11, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The Lord takes credit for that, right? Um, And what Satan means for evil, God means for what? Good. God works all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. How about uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where he talked about this thorn in the flesh, which some say was some kind of eye ailment, some kind of eye disease that really hampered his ministry. And he asked the Lord to take it away three times. And God said, no. And he said, for my grace is sufficient for you and my power is perfected in your weakness. In other words, I want to demonstrate my power through your weakness. And so God allowed this man to be born blind so that he could demonstrate his power and grace and mercy and wisdom in healing him. Notice what Jesus went on to say, verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus knew that the, the hostility of unbelief was increasing. He knew his time was short. The twilight of his ministry was beginning. He was about six months away from the darkness coming when he would be arrested and crucified. And he said, my time is short, and i got to get to work here. And, 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 and we know that after he died and, and rose again and returned to heaven, his disciples were to carry on this light. He says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. But guess what? Now we're the light of the world, right? Jesus said, let your light shine among men, that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so really, this applies to us as well today as believers, as followers of Christ, that we, we have a limited amount of time to serve Christ. And so we need to make the most of the time that God gives us. You've probably heard that little uh, expression, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Have you heard that? Well, that's not all that the poet wrote. This is the entire statement. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. And then Leonard Ravenhill, who was a a great revivalist um, um, in this last century, he said this, do you think all Christians die happy? He said, not on your life. Why? Because they've misused their time and wasted their lives. If you want to read a good book that will challenge you not to waste your life, you need to get John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. And uh, it's a very helpful resource. 
And um, he bases it off this expression, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Um, encourage you to get that book. We've got him in our resource center. Notice verse six. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. Now, this is interesting because in Matthew 9, Jesus healed two blind men by touching their eyes. In Mark 8, he healed a blind man by spitting in his eyes. That's kind of weird, but he did it, right? But in this instance, he actually spit in the ground and he mixed his saliva with the dirt to make clay, which he plastered over the man's eyes. You say, well, why did he do that? Seems like he was doing a little bit more for this guy than he did the other guys. Well, I think it was because this man's blindness was congenital. Maybe his eyes had not developed properly, right, in the womb. And so this was really Jesus performing a creative act just like he did when he created Adam. And how did he create Adam? From the dust of the ground, right? And so he was recreating, if you will, this, this, man's, this man's eyes. Look at verse 7. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. So notice, um, he never told him that he was going to be healed, right? He just said, hey, I want you to go to the pool. Um, obviously, the assumption was that maybe you're going to be healed, but he was requiring this man to demonstrate faith. Maybe part of that was, was, part of the dirt thing was helpful because now he had all the stuff, junk caked on his eyes and he needed to go somewhere to wash it off, right? Because it was irritating him, so he had to go get that clean. But notice uh, how John points out here uh, the, the name of the pool. The pool Siloam, translated, means sent. Not only was Jesus sending this guy to that pool, but Jesus was the sent one from God. And I think that was what John was wanting us to, to pick up from that little parenthetical statement there, that uh, how ironic it is that here's the sent one sending this man to the pool called sent, right, to be healed. And, and John just, very in a matter-of-fact way, so he went away and washed and came back seeing. Are you kidding me, John? That's all you could say? I mean, it was like, it was just so matter-of-fact, right? But apparently this was commonplace for the disciples. They were seeing this kind of stuff all the time. But can you imagine what a, an incredible moment that must have been when this man's eyes were opened for, for the very first time and he saw, right, for the very first time. I mean, maybe the first thing he saw was his reflection in that, in that water, and he began to look up and see the trees and the sky and, and other people walking around. And I mean, some of us that have glasses, uh, we can appreciate just, just a little bit, right? Uh, we, we didn't, I don't know how you figured out you needed glasses, but, but I was sitting way back in a big church in California, and my buddy got glasses. I thought they were pretty cool. I said, hey, let me try those on. And I put on his glasses. I was like, Whoa! Well, everything's all of a sudden crystal clear. Everything was fuzzy. I just knew there was a guy down there preaching because I, I could hear his voice and I could see this blob down there. But I didn't know that. I thought I had 20. I told, I got 20-20 vision. I got 20-20 vision. I'm the only guy in my family that doesn't have glasses. You know, I'm thinking God spared me, right, from glasses. Well, I put the glasses on. I realized I don't have 20-20 vision. I need glasses. And uh, my parents tell the story. My sister got glasses, and she was driving down the road after she left the, the doctor's office, and she said, look, Mommy, she said, the trees have leaves. 
apparently she just thought there were this mass of green, this green blob over there, you know, that that's all she was seeing. But, but can you imagine just not just seeing clear, but just pitch dark? That's all. It was just pitch dark. And all of a sudden you could see everything perfectly. Verse 8. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So the people who knew him got into this argument among themselves about who this guy was. I mean, some weren't sure what to think. Others said, this is the guy. While others said, no, this is just a lookalike. He looks, this is a case of mistaken identity. Surely it can't be the same guy. Because blind people don't all of a sudden start seeing. But the man kept insisting that he really was that blind beggar who used to sit at the side of the road. Verse 10, so they were saying to him, well, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. Well, obviously he didn't know because he wouldn't even know where to begin to look, right? Because he never saw Jesus. He only, what? Heard Jesus. And so his friends here are demanding this explanation. And so he just simply replays the events exactly the way they happened. And uh, it made them want to go see this amazing miracle worker themselves. And so again, all this man knew at this point was there was just some guy named Jesus who healed me. And I think that there's a lot of people like that today who've heard about Jesus. They even acknowledge and accept the fact that he truly existed. But you need to understand that just believing, simply believing that Jesus was a historical figure isn't enough to save you, okay? Just because you know about Jesus, you've heard about this guy named Jesus, and you're here this morning, oh, I know Jesus, I've heard of Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I believe that he actually lived and he died and he rose again, I believe all that stuff. Well, guess what? If that's all you know about Christ, you have yet to fully see Jesus and you're living in the dark and you're still spiritually blind. Well, secondly, you may think Jesus was more than, you know, you know him as more than just a man named Jesus, right? He's more than just a name to you. No, he's a prophet. This guy was a prophet. Notice verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And so because the, 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 this guy's friends and neighbors, this is, this is all kind of a mystery to them, and so they thought, well, let's go to the religious authorities. Uh, those guys are always helpful, right? Uh, hoping that we might be able to uh, get an explanation from them of what happened. And yet, just as we have seen time and time again, the Pharisees just couldn't get past the fact that Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath. And he had made mud. He made mud. 
That's illegal. You can't make mud on this. That's work. He was working on the Sabbath. It's like, dude, you got a blind guy who was born blind. Now he's like can see perfectly. And all you're worried about is somebody making mud, mixing mud in the ground, on, on, on playing in the mud on Sabbath on the Sabbath. So based on, on that simple fact that he worked on the, he did work, unauthorized work on the Sabbath, they, they concluded that he could not be from God. But there were some who argued, hey, wait a minute, time out. If this guy was such a big sinner breaking the Sabbath, then how could God use him to perform miracles? I don't know who said that, but I'd like to think it was Nicodemus, right? Because we're seeing that Nicodemus is, is coming into his own here. Uh, this is what he said when he first met Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so you have a division here uh, within the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, which, by the way, is what Jesus does all the time. Jesus divides, right? And ever since he came, every time, ever since he set foot on this earth, men have always been forced to take sides. You've got to take a side. You're either for him, for Jesus, or you're against Jesus. There's no middle ground. Like, I'm sort of for Jesus, but I can appreciate what you guys are thinking over here. No, you're either for him or against him. Verse 17, so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. So they asked the guy a second time who he thought Jesus was. And he concluded by this point that Jesus must be a prophet of some kind, like Moses or Elijah or Elijah, these guys who perform miracles. Um, obviously, he had to be a prophet. This, this was the same conclusion that the woman at the well came to about Jesus when he told her about her past uh, and even her present, right, that she had been married five, married and divorced five times and she was presently living with a guy that wasn't even her husband. And she said this, surely, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Because only a prophet could, understand, could know that about anybody without that set that they were, they were out to prove this guy wrong. So the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and received sight, verse 18, until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. So, yep, this is our son, and yep, he was born blind. But now how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Side note, verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And so they brought the parents in. The parents verified that this is indeed their son. He was indeed born blind. And they still... Uh, refused the evidence, right? This conclusive evidence that they were looking for. They got what they were looking for. Um, they, didn't, they didn't necessarily care how he, that wasn't the question. They wanted to verify, was this guy really born blind? Well, yeah, he was born blind. We, we, we verify that. However, notice it says that they feared being excommunicated from the synagogue 
And because of that, they evaded the issue and said that their son was old enough to answer for himself. Talk about passing the buck, like, hey, we're not sure how he got healed, right? They didn't want to cause a stir with the Jewish religious leaders. And you say, well, what's the big deal, being excommunicated? Well, listen, that was the Jews' worst fear, to be excommunicated from the synagogue and and also Judaism. Um, Basically, you lost all the privileges of the Jewish religion. You would be treated as an outcast, as a Gentile dog. But I would say that's nothing compared to being barred from the glories of heaven and having to spend eternity in hell for rejecting Jesus Christ. But that's what will happen to people who think that Jesus was just a prophet. Listen, that's not enough to save anyone. Well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He's a prophet. He's like Muhammad. He's like whatever. Yeah, no, listen. If that's all you think about Jesus Christ, you still have yet to fully see Jesus and you're still living in the dark. You are spiritually blind. You say, well, you know what? My, my perspective on Jesus is even more than that. I consider him a, a man from God. That's more than a prophet. He's a man from God. Well, verse 24 It says, so a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, I don't think they were saying, hey, listen, stop giving this Jesus guy the glory for this. Give give the glory to God for this because we know he ultimately healed you. No, that's not what they're saying here. This is more like swearing to tell the truth in a court of law. Remember back in Joshua chapter 7 when Achan stole some of the stuff that was under the ban when they destroyed uh, Jericho, right? And then they went off to Ai and they lost the battle and, and, and Joshua went to God and said, Lord, what happened? I thought you were going to be with us and we were going to conquer everybody. He said, yeah, listen, there's sin in the camp. Somebody took some stuff that I said not to take and, and, and you go through all the families and tribes and, and I'll point out who it was. And so it got, came down to Achan, right? And the spotlight was on Achan. And remember, J- Joshua said, to, 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 to Achan, he said, Achan, give glory to God. In other words, stop lying. Fess up, come clean, tell the truth. And that's what they're saying. Listen, you, 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 need to, you didn't tell us the truth there. We know you're making up this story. I mean, admit it. This, this guy didn't heal you. He's a sinner. I mean, why are you giving this guy any credit for the fact that you can see? In verse 25, he then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, and here's this great line, that though I was blind, now I see. I once was blind, but now I see. That's where Newton got that line for his hymn. And so the man just refused to, to deny what had happened. He says, listen, I can't debate you as to this guy's character. I don't know the guy. That's beyond my knowledge and experience, but there is one thing I do know. Listen, I was blind, and now I see. And that's my story, and I'm sticking with it, okay? That's basically what he's saying. Verse 26, so they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? So here the Pharisees keep pestering this guy to tell him what really happened. And so by the third time, he's gotten fed up here, and he's probably thinking, listen, you don't believe that I was blind. I'm beginning to think you're deaf, okay? <laughs> because I've told you three times already, and you guys just aren't listening. And then he threw, some, threw in some sarcasm here. He goes, oh, I, I get it. You guys are interested in becoming one of his disciples, aren't you? Well, 
You didn't say that kind of stuff to the Pharisees, okay? They didn't appreciate sarcasm. Verse 28, they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. Really, he's only told you about a hundred times, right? But you guys just won't listen, won't believe him. And so they considered his response an insult. They began to dress him down. And they claimed to be abiding by the authority of Moses, right? Whose law for centuries had been the standard of Israel's, Israel's religion. But this Jesus guy is a nobody. He's, a, he's this vagrant prophet that doesn't keep the law. He breaks the Sabbath all the time. And so they failed to see that a, that a man greater than Moses was in their midst. I mean, Moses never healed a guy born blind. That's the one thing Jesus had going for him, right? That they were blind to. Well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so this guy's getting a little bolder, isn't he? Um, and he's turning the, he really turned the theological tables on these guys, and, 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 and he's like, listen, you mean to tell me you don't know who this guy is? Come on, you're the religious expert, shame on you. I'm the first guy in, in, in all of history, as far as I know, who was born blind, and I've regained my sight. And if God doesn't listen to sinners, then how could Jesus have performed this miracle if he's under some kind of divine condemnation? I mean, this should be evidence to you to prove that, that he was a man sent from God. And if the Pharisees had, had known their Old Testament better than I guess they thought they did, they, they would have known that Jesus was the Messiah because it's prophesied that the Messiah would restore the sight of blind people. In fact, Jesus took some of those prophecies, he read those prophecies and applied them to himself in, in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke. Verse 34, the the Pharisees answered him, you were born entirely in sins and you're teaching us? So feeling upstaged by by this beggar, they accused him of being a sinner. And I guess just like the disciples had suggested earlier, the Pharisees said, the reason why you were blind, man, is because you're just, you were born in sin. You're you're you're, you're, You're a sinner. Get out of here. And it says, notice, they put him out. Translated means they threw him out of the synagogue. They they did to him what his parents were scared was going to happen to them. He got excommunicated. He got kicked out of the Jewish religion. He was barred from the Jewish synagogue. He was stripped of all the privileges of Judaism. And I know that that's what has happened to some of you who maybe have left traditional religions to come to faith in Christ, right? I mean, you've had to deal with being cast out, being put out of your family, of being looked down upon. And um, that's why 
Thanksgiving and Christmas and other family holidays are not as enjoyable as they used to be, right? Because you're looked down upon. Because you're the, the, you're the ones that got away, right? You're the ones that forsook the, the family tradition, the family religion for faith in, in, in this guy named Jesus. And specifically, when a, when, a, when a Jewish person embraced Jesus Christ, and this is true today, they're kicked out of Judaism. They're, they're treated like an outcast, like a, a tax collector and a sinner. But listen, what a great, there's no better category to be included in than tax collectors and sinners because that's the very group that Jesus came to save. I didn't come to, to heal the, 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 the people that were well. I came to, to heal the sick, right? I didn't come to, to, to help the righteous. I came to help sinners. But I would say again, though, even if you consider Jesus to be a man of God, somebody set apart, uh, maybe even more important than a Muhammad or other religious leaders uh, throughout the history of the world, that he's a man from God, but he's not God, then you have yet to fully see Jesus for who he really is, and you're still living in the dark. You're still spiritually blind. Because ultimately, number four, you must know Jesus as the Son of Man, the Son of God. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. Like right now, I'm the guy. I'm the Son of Man. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Now, I love this, this, this transition here between verses 34 and 35 because it says that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, right, who were to minister to sinful people, right, and to help sinful people, had cast the guy out and said, Get out of here, you big sinner. And it says, Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him. In other words, Jesus went out looking for him. I appreciate when people say, you know what, I found God, I found Jesus. Listen, you didn't find God, you didn't find Jesus, he found you. He found you, he came out looking for you. And I love this, how Jesus searched for this guy, he found this guy, and he took him in, like the good shepherd, right, that we're gonna learn about in the next chapter, and there's a connection here between chapters nine and chapter 10, but like the good shepherd, he sought out his lost sheep and brought him into the fold, brought him into the flock. It's as if Jesus said, listen, if they don't want you, I'll take you. And those who are cast out of other religions for for Jesus' sake lose nothing because they receive a greater blessing in fellowship with Christ and his followers. And I love how Jesus said to Peter in Mark chapter 4 after uh, the, the rich young ruler had walked away because he wasn't willing to give up everything to follow Christ. And Peter said, well, we gave up everything to follow you. And Jesus said, yeah, but you know what? You're going to get back way more than you gave up. And he lists all these things that they were going to be blessed with and ultimately eternal life. There's no greater consolation than Jesus Christ. The question for us is, are you willing to consider the cost to follow Christ? To hate father, mother, brother, sister, husband, wife, son, daughter, yes, even your own life to be a disciple of Christ. That's the kind of commitment 
that Jesus required of this guy, that he, was, he, he had to be willing to get kicked out of the synagogue, to get kicked out of his religion to follow him. But in order to, to do that, he had to first realize that Jesus was more than just a man with a, with a, with a special name, Jesus, right? You know there's something special about that name. There, there, there's families, I've been watching this in the news, that they want to call their name Jesus, and one judge said, no way. There's been only one Jesus, and you can't call your kid Jesus. I mean, I love that judge. I appreciate that judge. So, yeah, there's something special about the name Jesus, but you need to realize that Jesus is more than just a guy named Jesus. He was more than a prophet. He's more than just a, a holy man sent from God. He was the Son of Man. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? A reference back to the Old Testament in the book of Daniel uh, when the prophecy of, of uh, the, the Messiah coming in the end, the coming of the Son of God. It says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so by calling himself the Son of Man, he was calling himself the Messiah. He was linking himself to that prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. And so he invited this man to place his complete faith in him as his Savior and his Lord. And he instantly responded in faith. Once he knew who he was talking to, he fully grasped, he fully saw who Jesus really was. And he embraced him as his Lord and as a Savior. And notice it says, and he worshiped him. He worshiped him, verse 38. My question is, if Jesus wasn't God then why did he accept this worship? Why did he let this guy worship him? You remember Peter and, and, and Paul and Barnabas when, when people were so like, oh, it's Paul, it's Barnabas, oh, it's Peter, and they wanted to worship them like gods. They said, whoa, 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 time out. Don't you worship us. We're, we're just men like you. But notice Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say, time out, what are you doing? Worship me, get up off your feet. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm nothing special. No, he let him worship him. Why? Because he was God. And so worship was the natural response of this guy. He wasn't just a, a healed blind man. This, he was a saved soul. His soul had been saved. I mean, this was the greatest day of this guy's life. I mean, talk about a two-for-one special, right? I mean, he not only had, had received physical sight, but he also received spiritual sight. And as I mentioned earlier, the greatest miracle in this whole story was not the opening of his eyes, but the opening of his heart the eyes of his heart, to fully see Jesus so he would no longer have to live in the dark but could live in the light. And then notice how Jesus responds here. Um, in closing, he preaches a mini-sermon on spiritual blindness. Verse 39, and Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. You say, um, what is that all talking about? Well, very simply, that Jesus had come into the world so that those who do not see may see. In other words, if you are willing to acknowledge, I can't see, I'm blind, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, right? Then he grants you grace and you're able to see because you're humble enough to admit that you can't see. 
But he says, I've come to judge those who see that they would become blind. In other words, the people say, what if, I can see fine. What are you talking about? It's the Pharisees, right? I can see completely clear. I don't need Jesus. Well, that just confirms them in their blindness. Those who see and become blind are those who trust in themselves and, and pride blinds them to their need of Christ. Jesus doesn't make them blind. They, they blind themselves, if you will, by rejecting him. He just confirms that. And the blind who come to sight are, are those who admit their helplessness, their, their inability, and they trust Jesus for their self. How can you fully see Jesus the way this man did? You need to admit that, you're, that you can't see, that you're a sinner. But those who say they can see perfectly without the Lord Jesus are confirmed in their blindness. Jesus told the Pharisees, it's like the blind leading the blind. And, and they got Jesus' point. They weren't that ignorant. Verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, verse 40, we are not blind too, are we? Are you implying that we're blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. In other words, if you admitted that you were blind and that you couldn't see apart from Christ, then guess what? I would forgive your sin. But since you say, oh, we see fine without you, then guess what? You're going to remain in your sin and you're going to die in your sin. You know, that's how some people respond to Christ. They reject him altogether. Like, I'm not even going to give Jesus the time of day. He's not worth my, the energy, the attention. I'm not even going to validate this guy at all, right? And, and so they do everything they can to discredit, disprove what he said, what he did, and, 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 and they, their mind is already made up. It's rather than considering the evidence that is clearly here in the scriptures, they, they just explain him away. Whereas if they would just take an honest look at the facts, they would see that he is the Son of God. And that this blind beggar is really a picture of all of us. That all of us are like this man born blind. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins and are by nature object of God's wrath. But the good news is the gospel the gospel is if that you're willing to admit that you're blind and, and sinful and that you need a savior, then your sins can be forgiven and you can be saved from God's wrath. But if you say, man, I don't need Jesus, I don't need God, then listen, you claim that you're righteous in and of yourself, you have no sin, and guess what? There's no forgiveness. And I think the words of Jesus to the church in Laodicea are so appropriate in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, he said, Because you say I am rich, and I become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. And then he concluded with this, Behold, I stand at the door and what? And knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, 
I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. All it takes is for you to respond to this gracious invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ to see, to spiritually see, to see the Son, Jesus Christ, in all of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and and just the story of the blind man. And we know, we see ourselves all over this story because we are that blind man. Lord, we were born into sin and, and there was no hope for us apart from Christ. And we thank you for your amazing grace in sending Jesus to, to die on the cross in our place, to live that life that we could never live, that you required, that perfect life that you required to go to heaven and then to die that death, that penalty that we deserve to pay. He paid that for us. And Lord, thank you for the privilege that we have to, to be used by you to, to open blind eyes through the glorious message of the gospel. And I pray that you would burden our hearts even now for people that we're gonna run into this week, that we're gonna work with this week, we're gonna go to school with this week, maybe we're gonna live in the same house with this week that don't know Christ, who, who are still living in the dark and are spiritually blind. Lord, that you would burden our hearts, that, that we would boldly and graciously speak the gospel into their life, that they might see, open up their blind eyes for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.